You're listening to Ecotones Now. We're a 100% independent, volunteer-run podcast companion to the award-winning site Environmental History Now, a platform to showcase the work and expertise of graduate students and early career scholars who identify as women, trans, and or non-binary people. I'm Emma Mosswild. I'm Natalie Jo Rose Wilkinson. And we're your hosts for this season, Our Community's Voices. In this episode, Anna Guasco shares the trouble with fieldwork or troubling embodiment. I could speak of body and place through visceral metaphors. Dislocation comes to mind. The word dislocation has come up in other essays for EHN's Problem of Place series, but I don't think other writers meant this word as viscerally as I interpret it. I think of dislocated joints. When joints dislocate, they don't stay in place. They are displaced. My joints are less committed to place than my research is. They are not place-based. Yes, that is a pun. I could also describe my experiences of problems of place through another bodily visceral metaphor, proprioception. Proprioception is kind of like a fancy word for balance. Clinically, it is described as joint position sensing a sense of knowing where all your joints are in time and space, and having the ability to react accordingly. Proprioception can fail me. Sometimes my joints encounter an unexpected contour of the environment and suddenly lose their sense of place. But I don't like the option of using illness as metaphor to borrow Susan Sontag's phrase. Academia far too easily flirts with the real, visceral, and embodied experiences of disability and chronic illness. It turns these experiences into convenient and inaccurate metaphors. Dislocation and impaired proprioception are not poetic metaphors for what it's like to do or not do environmental history fieldwork. I don't wish to theorize my body as a site of research. It's a site of enough already. When I started my master's degree in environmental studies in Scotland, I was using crutches. At the time, I used the language of being on crutches instead of using crutches. I thought it was temporary, an injury that would resolve in a few weeks. On the second day of the program, we went on a field trip from Edinburgh to Dunbar to visit the birthplace of the iconic yet deeply problematic environmentalist John Muir. The trip's aim was going to the place he was born and walking in his footsteps. However, I couldn't walk in his footsteps. So when the group left for a hike along the coast, I returned to town by myself. I sat on a bench next to an abandoned church at the end of the high street. Later that day, one person told me I was a trooper for doing this on crutches. This? Did they mean the field trip? Or the degree? 
Another one joked that I had, I had better be better by the time of our spring field trip, which was a walking-focused field trip up north near the Scottish Highlands. This wasn't the first time I was called a trooper for quietly enduring inaccessible conditions. A few years earlier, on a summer field course in ecology, I had another mysteriously slow healing injury that affected my walking. Nevertheless, I put on a smile and tromped around in tide pools despite my medical walking boot. I didn't ask for adjustments or accommodations. For my endurance, I received a paper plate award for being the trooper. Back in Scotland, several months later, I wasn't better. I was still using crutches. I was still in pain. The field trip trainer for the walking experience left me a box of books to peruse in the art center's cafe while the rest of the group went out into the woods. The box included field guides to all the landscapes and wildlife that I was not going to see. She told me they would visit the tree from Macbeth. Not understanding this reference, I picked up a Shakespeare volume from this box and read the entirety of Macbeth in the corner of the cafe while they were gone. When they returned, we made maps of our experiences. Mine was a map of the art center and the cafe with the lift or elevator as a focal point. Nobody called me a trooper when I showed my map. I was a trooper when I went out on field courses or did field work without complaining about inaccessibility, without making people feel uncomfortable by drawing attention to the inaccessibility of the image of being in the field that they had constructed. I don't want to be told I'm a trooper for enduring inaccessibility in pleasant silence. What I want is to not have to be a trooper. I want the conditions of my degree and my field of study to not require me or expect me to be a trooper. In his oft-cited environmental history manifesto, The Trouble with Wilderness, or Getting Back to the Wrong Nature, William Cronin writes, but the trouble with wilderness is that it quietly expresses and reproduces the very values its devotees seek to reject." End quote. Reading Cronin's critique of wilderness was one of my entry points into environmental history. My aim here is not to respond to Cronin's work on wilderness or its related concepts, but rather to reformulate his central thesis and apply it to environmental history methodology. Despite environmental history's commitment to taking a closer and critical look at the all too commonly taken for granted aspects of environment, from wilderness to native to invasive to natural and much more, that same lens hasn't been turned enough to a central methodology of environmental history. Fieldwork, even if it isn't always described as fieldwork, continues to rise in prominence. New emphases on going there continue to pop up, and the environmental humanities, history included, are rapidly including field courses like the one I participated in during my master's into their undergraduate and postgraduate curricula. As Anna Sekulich wrote evocatively in her recent piece for EHN, environmental history methodology often emphasizes a particular kind of embodied immersion in the landscape of one's study. 
if you cannot embody that particular mode of engagement, a masculinist, colonial, imperialist knowing of place through its conquering, you risk becoming, as she puts it, quote, overwhelmed with a sense of inadequacy, end quote. Sukulich writes, walking the talk, the idea that insight comes from a particular type of physical exertion in inhospitable terrains, the seemingly innocuous phrase whose rhyme captures the implicit link between able bodies and trustworthy knowledge. This is, of course, the core myth of the Western frontier and wilderness, but its principles that privilege the able-bodied are built into other landscapes and other types of history writing. I tried walking and talking until I couldn't. If my legs cannot take me to certain spaces, can my mind truly know them? End quote. This quotation brings me back to the problem of fieldwork in environmental history. Specifically, it brings me to the trouble of fieldwork. One key problem here is environmental history fieldwork's relation to troublesome bodies, or more accurately, the bodies of those who trouble the very ways environmental history understands itself. Those whose embodied experiences challenge environmental history's modes of knowledge production and highlight different ways of knowing the places environmental historians study. The trouble with fieldwork in environmental history is that it quietly expresses and reproduces the very values its devotees seek to reject. It isn't enough for environmental historians to break down the taken-for-granted nature of nature. We must also break down the taken-for-granted assumptions of the field of environmental history about the field and where and how legitimate knowledge is produced. Whose body performs fieldwork? Whose body fits into the image of fieldwork? And what does it mean when one's body doesn't cooperate with place-based research and fieldwork? In addition to the question of the researcher's embodied experience of fieldwork, the fetishization of fieldwork extends to the sites of fieldwork too. Which places are the field and which ones are not? What and where is the field in fieldwork? The field is not just out there in supposedly challenging environments, be they urban, wild, rural, or suburban. Doing environmental history does not require climbing every mountain or fording every stream. It does not require glorifying pain, whether that pain is from physical exertion outside or hours spent hunched over tiny handwriting in the archive. Doing place-based research is an embodied and place-specific process. It is a commitment. It is an ethos. But it does not need to involve traditional images of fieldwork or archival travel. Changing those images and expectations is crucial. As EHN contributors Anna Sekulich, Celeste Henry, and Teresa Pilgrim all demonstrate in different problems of place pieces involving walking, incorporating embodied place-based experiences into environmental history methods does not have to be an exercise in reifying problematic tropes 
of the rugged masculine explorer, conquering landscapes in his quest for knowledge. Embodied approaches to place-based environmental histories can instead be formed around care, empathy, contingency, community, accountability, and accessibility. Fieldwork in environmental history too often fetishizes both the body and the field, and both deserve better. We're so grateful to our guests for sharing their work with us today. You can find information about them, links to further reading, and a text version of the piece in the show notes. This work was originally published on the Environmental History Now website, alongside so many other brilliant and thought-provoking pieces, which you can explore at envhistnow.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at ENVHIST now. We'll see you soon with more Community Voices. This show is produced and edited by Emma Mosswild and Natalie Jo Rose Wilkinson, with music provided by Natalie Jo Rose Wilkinson and Christine Murphy. Special thanks to Elizabeth Hemateman, to this season's contributors, and to you for listening.